Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast where we're going to learn how to invest like the best investors in the world. And by that, we mean Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and guys like Guy Spear and Manesh Pabrai and David Einhorn and Bill Ackman and other people that the world calls, uh, often calls value investors, but most of which are not classic value investors. We're going to learn well, to invest like those guys. Awesome. Yeah. So they are value investors. What does that mean? What's a value investor? Well, classically, value investors follow the teachings of Ben Graham, who started teaching value investing back in the 1930s um, as a professor at Columbia University. Um, and he wrote a book with David Dodd in 1934 called Security Analysis, which is the Bible of value investing, and which says basically that stock prices are not always priced at the value of the business, that sometimes because of fear in the market, you can find companies that are priced much, much lower than their value. And security analysis is the process of figuring out what the value is so you know if the price is a lot lower. And value investing is buying those companies where the price is much, much lower than the value. Oh, okay. So that's basically what we've been doing. It's trying to figure out the valuation so that we can know if the value of a company, as according to the system we're using, is different than its actual stock price. That's right. So in today or tomorrow or next week. Yeah. So in that sense, we're value investors. But people have asked Warren Buffett if he's a value investor, and he said no. And yeah. the, the reason is, is because value investing has become kind of uh, put itself in a box um, that essentially says that what you're going to do is buy companies that have a low P.E. ratio. Um, and that's how you know. Price to earnings. Right. So if the P.E. ratio is, let's say, in single digits, that would that company would automatically become a target for value investors. Okay. In other words, it's overly simplified, um, the process of, of figuring out the true value of a business. Um, in other words... Oh, so if, he's saying that a value investor, as typically defined, only looks at that one variable, the price to earnings ratio? I wouldn't go that far. And in fact, that's way too simplistic. But it's, it's more that a value investor won't buy, typically would not buy a growth stock, a stock which is growing rapidly. Um, like a Google, let's say, because that by definition has a high P.E. ratio. It's a growth stock. Um, and that doesn't fit into this box that value investing has put itself in. Whereas what Warren Buffett does and Charlie Munger and me and Guy and all these other people, what we try to do is simply find a vast difference between price and value. So if we can value Google, if we think Google is worth $1,000 a share, and it's coming public at $200, that's something I would be interested in buying, even if that $200 is a PE ratio of 25. Hmm. So I'm not going to worry about, you know, a simplistic view of value like a PE ratio. What I'm really interested in doing is figuring out what's this business worth as a business. And if I can purchase it at a big discount to that, then I'm in. It doesn't matter what the PE ratio is. So uh, am I wrong? That sounds like exactly what I said earlier, which is that the P.E. ratio is one variable, but Warren yes. Buffett uses 
more than that. Yes, that's precisely. You said that that was overly simplistic as far as defining value investors. I think I missed the one the one variable thing. Oh, oh okay. Sorry. Okay, but so like, because because we've talked before about how value investors sort of back in the day would buy like. 300, 500 stocks at any given time, they would own a ton of companies. Yes. And they would do that because they would just run the numbers, basically. I don't know how before computers, but somehow they would run the numbers and, uh, and find these, these stocks that were supposedly undervalued. And now what Buffett is doing, what Munger does, what you've been doing is... Is, is essentially use a number of other variables and, and the PE ratio is just one of them in order to find companies that are ostensibly undervalued. True? Yeah, true. In fact, you'll notice that we really haven't spent a lot of time on PE ratio. Um, a no, I can barely even recall any. I mean, I, I kind of understand what it is. It's the price over the earnings number. I assume the earnings is like an annual number. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and we do use it when we're figuring out a, you know the margin of safety. We we need to know kind of what the PE ratio would be in the future. Well, we did use it for that. Yeah. That's right. But in general, we use a, a more things that are more oriented toward free cash flow rather than earnings, um, because ultimately we're buying businesses as if they're private. We don't really try to buy them from a public point of view. And if you recall, essentially, we we're pricing businesses at as if they're as a public company, what they would be worth. And then we're trying to buy them at a private company price. So we, we really want the free cash flow. You say that the flow. traditional value investors were doing the same thing, right? They, well, a traditional well, value investor is going to do very much what price, you... But they would, they would, uh, they just want it for a low price. Like, they don't care what label you put on it. They just want it for a low price. Yeah, and... The traditional value investor follows Ben Graham uh, perhaps more closely than we would, where Ben was getting 200 stocks that he mm -hmm. thought were on sale um, back in the Depression, you know, where the potential for a business to go out of business suddenly was very high. Um, he wanted to get protection, even though he was buying everything that looked like it was on sale. You know, there was this risk of something just going out. And that's kind of more what value investors do today is. If you called yourself a value investor, you, you might own 100 stocks, 150 stocks. And, um, and that's for that same level of protection is because you're buying stuff that Warren Buffett calls cigar butts, which means, which means something that's in the street, it's very cheap, it's nearly free or it's free, and you pick it up and it may only have a couple puffs in it, but hey, that's, that's better than free. So you come out okay. And we, so they're not looking for a huge upside. They're just looking for some upside. Yeah, some upside and uh, the willingness to pick up a cigar butt and it didn't have a couple puffs in it. Mm. So you don't need to know that much about the cigar butt you're picking up if you're buying 200 of them. Uh, and so it's really just becomes a measure of running numbers as opposed to understanding the business. And a long time ago, Charlie Munger got into Warren Buffett's life and said, Warren, I, I know that you following Ben Graham and you're buying cigar butts, um, but now you're investing enough money and now the world has changed dramatically from back in the Depression and World War II. Cigar butts, you know, real ones with puffs in them are becoming extremely hard to find. And it might be better to buy a wonderful business 
not a cigar butt, you know, a wonderful business at a fair price than to buy a, you know, fair business at a wonderful price. It might be a lot riskier to be buying fair businesses at wonderful prices that turn out to be not so wonderful if the business goes bad. Hmm. And they changed. So Buffett changed his philosophy back in the 60s and began looking for companies that are really, really good companies because those kinds of companies can survive our own errors. Whereas a cigar butt, we make a mistake on the value here and it's gone. I mean, it's just that money's just well, and gone. That's why they bought hundreds of them. And that's why they bought hundreds of them. But if you think of Charlie's point, it got really hard to buy hundreds of good cigar butts. Yeah, 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 I get that. So now you're buying hundreds, but you're buying total crap all the time. And that can be very dangerous. Or you're buying cigar butts, but there's only 10 of them. And all of a sudden you're not diversified anymore. Yeah, well, there's 10 of them and you bought 190 bad things that aren't even cigar butts. They're <laughs> just on their way down. So we and how would you know? Because you're not putting the time into understanding the business. And so Buffett's taught us that the key to real investing, not speculating, but real investing is to understand the business you're buying like an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Right. Understand it on that level. You know, why are you deciding to make peanut butter, you know, this way? You know, what what's your market and how how durable is that going to be for you? And. And understanding a business like that um, requires that you have in place something that cigar butt companies don't have. And almost by definition, they don't have it. And many, many, many value type investments don't have this critical thing, which is what makes a business really wonderful. And that is an intrinsic quality in the business that protects it from competition. It gives it some kind of, a, of almost a monopoly kind of thing, you know, like Coca-Cola isn't a monopoly exactly, right? But they have this incredible brand that people just keep coming back to. And, you know, Harley-Davidson has something similar to that. Burlington Northern Railroad, Union Pacific, they have tracks and you can't, you can't get the tracks to compete with them. So there's, we're looking for businesses that are wonderful by definition of a certain type. Um, and those are not so many businesses. And we found that it's better for us to buy a few really wonderful businesses than to buy a lot of businesses we don't understand. Oh, yes, there are not very many of them. It's frustrating. Well, it is in this market. I'll tell you that um, all of our students are frustrated to a certain degree by how difficult it is to find a wonderful business that's on sale. And why shouldn't it be difficult in this market? The Federal Reserve is is trying desperately to get the country moving again, you know, to get un unemployment up. And and what we have is a, a lot of, uh, of federal interaction with the market that has destroyed the returns that people are used to getting from other asset groups. So now you can't get a good return in a bond. You can't, you can't, there's no return in a, in a bond. In fact, if you were to put money in bonds right now in Germany or Japan, they would take money away from you. Yes, I heard that that's possible. It is. That is the most insane, I have no words for like how confounding that is to my mind, that you can put money somewhere and they can take it away from you as like, like you can put it in a savings account and they can literally charge you. They, they could do that. 
to they, count. They could do that. It's it hasn't gone that far down the mountain yet, but it's at the top of the mountain. It's possible. It is possible. I mean, what they're charging is negative interest rates to the central, to the regional banks that are the money the money supply for all the rest of the banks, and so if the banks want to park money there instead of lending it, they're going to be paying for the privilege of parking it. And what yeah, they're amazing. That's amazing. Apparently, you and everybody else who understands financial stuff does not think that's amazing. I think that's amazing in a negative way. Oh, I think you're joined by a lot of people who do understand finance. They're scared because this is this is a unexplored territory, and they're not sure what the unintended consequences are of this. Um, I mean, how can even conceptually? How can that? be true. It just does not make sense to me. Well, they're essentially trying to force banks to loosen their lending standards and get the money out there. But if you'll recall... So they're trying to discourage saving. Right. But Well, they're, they're trying to incur, yeah, discourage savings at the, at the retail investor, you know, people like you and me. Um, they want us to spend the money and get the economy moving and create jobs. But the, the problem is that people who want to borrow money are often people who need it. <laughs> and the old, the old rule about yes, banking... that is true. <laughs> the old rule about banking is that if you, you should never try to borrow money when you need it because they won't lend it to you. That's, <laughs> that's the old, the old uh, sort of structure of old banking was that, you know, if they know you're desperate for it, then there's probably all kinds of things about your financial statements that they don't they should be looking into. Well, what's replaced that are now constraints put on by Congress in America. And I'm sure they've got the same problems all over the world. But in in the Dodd-Frank regulations demanded by our people um, to you know, to handle the the excesses of banking, you know, the Dodd-Frank rules make it really actually quite hard to lend the money to somebody who doesn't qualify for it in, in a very rigorous qualification process. And so they've you know, they've certainly cured the, the bad loans to subprime lenders. They've certainly um, taken the ability of banks uh, away from them to loan money to people that shouldn't, according to the government, shouldn't get it. Um, because they're going to have difficulty paying it back or because they don't understand finance or because they don't understand the, the rules of their loan or for whatever reason, the federal government has now stepped in as big brother to make sure that you who need money don't have an opportunity to get it when you shouldn't get it according to big brother. Yeah, we have such a messed up financial system. I mean, it's, you know, it's been like this for such a long time where like think of like in its most simplistic form that you can't get a loan without a credit rating but you can't get a credit rating without a loan like it doesn't <laughs> it, it just doesn't make sense exactly i mean right luckily or maybe not so luckily i don't know we're at the point now where people are generally offered credit cards anyway and that's how you end up getting a credit rating without ever having had one before but a lot of people are not offered credit cards because of where they live, their address, lack of job, you know, like all kinds of various reasons. And well, we have we have we have forces in America that are that are are slamming into each other um, with I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. They're 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 not even left right forces. What they are are, you know, good hearted people and good hearted legislators 
who want to protect people from making mistakes financially, and they want to protect people without financial sophistication from big corporations that could use all kinds of marketing tricks to get unsophisticated people to borrow money. And, um, and people get in over their heads and go bankrupt, and it's very destructive. Um, but at the same time, good-hearted people want the economy to get moving and, and for people to consume and create jobs and, and have better jobs and better lives as a result of jobs. And they know that the key to that is to lend money to small companies. Yeah. And almost yeah. by definition, they won't qualify for loans under these new rules and regulations. So on one hand, we're screaming to get more jobs. And on the other hand, we've tied, we've tied the hands of the people who could lend the money. So we, when, we take, when we take the decision about money lending out of the hands of the, of the private market and make it into a federal thing, um, we end up with stagnation. And that's where we are now. So it's, and, and I mean, right now the statistics are horrible about what's going on. Back in, the two, in 2000, we had about, I think, eight or 9,000 people on food stamps. We now have 44, sorry, eight or 9 million people. We now have 44 million people on food stamps. It's unbelievable how many people have to seek support in order to make it because there's just no jobs. The, a combination of- made food stamps easier to get. Well, I hope so, because I'll tell you for sure what's going on is jobs are going overseas by the thousands, by corporations that are um, are in, in, under the overarching um, god of competition, right? The rule of competition. Corporations are almost able to do anything, you know? I mean, if you're looking for a job and you're an American engineer um, and you expect to get paid a good living wage for all of the education that you've put in, you know, you want to make seventy or eighty thousand dollars as a you know a, a junior engineer. Guess what? They can go out and get somebody from India, and they can eliminate your job by paying this guy fifty thousand dollars a year, and the State Department will let him bring that person in and take your job. To me, that's crazy. What do you think? Well, it's a little more complicated than that, of course, but. Yeah, I mean, company. I, I I do think that having a global economy means that companies have to be able to move around. I don't think our global economy works with with companies being forced to stay in one country. And we have a global economy, and that's not going to change. So unless we completely isolate the U.S. from everybody else, which is never going to happen and never going to work, we have to allow companies to move around. And I believe in the free market, and I think that's an essential part of the free market. Companies should be able to move to states, I mean, states within the U.S., and they should be able to move countries. Well, by the way, the reason... Now, the reason whether or not the, they that, should bring people over to the U.S. is a separate question. Yeah. Well, and, I tell you, the, the reason we're talking about this and, and, and on a podcast about investing is that once you start realizing that you need to invest your own money, you start to realize that you need to learn about what's going on in the world. As yeah, absolutely. That's, I couldn't agree more. That's been one of the most interesting parts of this process for me, of this practice of investing. Um, I've been researching auto companies, car companies, and I've discovered, I mean, I knew this, but like it really hits home that you discover that a lot of them are not American because American car companies are crap, generally. So, 
Oh man, you're gonna get letters on that one from I don't care. everybody Send who works in. at Ford and GM. Send them in. I'm saying it right now. Ford, I think I actually haven't done a deep dive into Ford, but from my overall dive, it's a uh, it's a little better than the other ones. But yeah, I mean, American car companies not amazing. I mean, so, it's like I'm driving a I'm driving a Ram truck, which I absolutely love. We also have a Ford truck, which we love actually a little less than the Ram truck. But unfortunately, the Ram truck is now an Italian truck owned by Chrysler? Fiat Chrysler. Fiat Chrysler? Yep. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yep. So I've been reading international annual reports because these companies are publicly traded on exchanges that are not American. And so their annual reports are, they still have them, but they're presented in different formats. And it's, it's just different. And I hadn't actually read any foreign annual reports, even as a lawyer. So it's, uh, it's an education for me in how other stock exchanges in other countries handle the same information. And they do it a little differently. And yep. it definitely takes a little bit of an education. And you start to realize, like, oh, I kind of thought I, <laughs> I, kind of thought I was getting this a little bit. And I'm very familiar with annual reports. And all of a sudden, oh, this is totally different. And by the way, what's happening in Italy and what's happening in Germany, where these car companies are? Isn't it interesting? I mean, we're, we're suddenly as as an investor, we're starting to think internationally, not just nationally. And I, I got to think, you know, as, if you're just listening to the podcast, just coming into it, you've got to be thinking, holy Christmas, this is going to be overwhelming. So no wonder people don't invest their own money. So let me address that really quickly before people start to freak out. That they can never accomplish. This Everybody level. thinking that I'm with you. Yeah. So let, let's let's be sure we can understand the context here. Well, maybe but, we should even say who we are. Dad, you're an investor. I am not. Yeah, fair enough. So uh, the context here is that we are going to let the market bring us maybe 20 companies over our lifetime that that we're going to buy. Um, the, the, markets, the market is always making these companies available to us if we knew which, the, which 20 they were out of 8,000. But we were going to wait for the market to bring them to us at a great price. So our job as an investor is pretty simple. It's to identify a relatively small number of businesses that we can understand, which have a great intrinsic characteristic that makes them durable. They're going to be around a long time, run by good people, and we have a fairly decent idea what they're worth. And then we're going to say, okay, if we think this is worth a hundred bucks, we're going to wait until the market moves big enough to bring us that company at 50 bucks. And the market does so that half, half regularly. We buy it at half the price yeah. we think its value is at. Yep. And, and that should, if you waited for that to happen in real estate, you'd be waiting for a once in a hundred years event. But in the stock market, it's a once in five or six years event. It will occur regularly in the stock market. Take, you know, take a look what at. What was a, the last one? Like two thousand nine? No, um, two thousand twelve. Two thousand twelve. There was a big dip. There was a big dip, about twenty five percent, and there was enough fear that some companies went massively on sale. Not only that, but there's a regular rotation or cycle of 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 individual industries such that if you're patient, you can buy energy industries at the bottom of their cycle. 
which we're very close to right now. So if you really liked oil and gas companies for the long run or uh, or uranium nuclear companies for the long run, if that's the area you were interested in, those have been hammered by commodity price drops now and, um, and are available at a price down the road that's going to look like it's probably a pretty good price. Okay. Now, not only that, not only do we just have to be patient and wait for these small number of businesses we've identified to go on sale, but we also can wait for information that great investors are buying those companies. Okay. And if, you know, in other words, we don't have to do this on our own dime. We, we can wait to see if one of a couple of dozen great investors is now starting to move in and buy companies in that area. And that really helps. So that combination of number one, just being willing to be patient, um, is that's, that's the first enormous advantage we have as an individual investor. Um, because when we give our money to a money manager, by definition, they cannot be patient. We, we and everybody else is telling them, go do magic things and make me money. And if they sit there with your money for two years in cash, you're gonna take your money away from them. So, okay. so the idea is pick a wonderful business, mm -hmm. good management mm -hmm. with the, the moat or the uh, intrinsic competitive advantage mm -hmm. and at half the price that it should be. And then we, we only do that when it's on sale and therefore we may have to wait for five to six years. I'd have to wait, yeah, three or four years. I mean, the cycle, right? As you're in the cycle, there's a downturn for a couple of years and then you buy in that downturn and, um, or you wait for an industry downturn. And those industry downturns are happening regularly. There's one every year. Okay, so here's my question about mm. that. It's yeah. actually a much larger question. It is, if you are supposed to sort of become an expert in one industry, which is what you call a canyon, correct? Correct. Are you just supposed to wait for that industry to come around and be in a downturn and possibly sit around for 20 years while you wait for that? Or do you say, oh, look, energy stocks are down. Maybe I should now become an expert in energy stocks, even though I know nothing about them at all, because that's what's on sale right now. Um, I think the answer is, uh, is that you start where you are in your life with what you already know about. And that tends to be things that you're already spending money on. So, you know, you have choices every day about where you're going to allocate your cash in terms of the things you're going to buy for your life. You just start to dig in on why actually am I going to Walmart? What is it about Walmart that really, you know, works for me? Yeah. And so you start to build right there. Now, let's say that you really got really good at that Walmart sort of store, right? Yeah. You've looked at Costco, Walmart, Bed Bath & Beyond, all that. You're really good at that retail thing. You understand why you like Walmart and why it's got a place in the world and it'll continue to have a place in the world, you know, or Amazon or whatever, right? So Walmart. And... And now you've got it. You've already done the work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now it's just a matter of maintenance, right? Keeping up on a couple of companies that you're watching once a quarter for an hour or so. So you've got a lot of extra time. <laughs> oh, really? Is that mm -hmm. how this works? <laughs> That's right. And so now to your question. Oh, you notice. You're supposed to constantly allocate large amounts of time. There okay. you go. 
So now you notice that, okay, you've done your homework, let's say for six months on this first industry, and you're really quite good at it, but it's not on sale as it, as it, we could say. Yeah, it's you're like, not. oh, there goes that six months. Yeah, there Thanks goes that six lot. months. I'm going to put, you know, I'm putting these three companies up on the watch list and I'll buy them someday, but who knows when. This is a horrible way to invest. I'm going to have forgotten everything I just did for six months, so I better take some notes. Exactly. So, so you, you then now have pretty well done the work there. So now you got some time. And so now where do you focus next? You know, in other words, you're going to start widening the canyon. And you're going to do that almost organically, Danielle. It almost happens without you trying. I swear that you have said to me, do not widen the canyon. I no. swear it. No, I have not said that. No. What I've said is stay inside the canyon. But widening the canyon is an inevitable part of becoming a more educated person about life. And you'll start to notice things. So you just said you start to notice that, wow, um, oil companies are getting absolutely hammered as oil barrel prices drop from $120 a barrel down to $30 a barrel. They're getting crushed left and right. And you notice because now you're reading things that, yeah. wow, half half of the oil exploration, exploration companies in America are expected to go bankrupt in 2016. That what? looks like a meltdown. Yeah. Okay. And immediately that takes you there. Now you think, huh, is this an industry that I could understand? Yes, I did. I did all of those steps. And my answer was, hell no, I'm getting out of this path. There you go. Commodities scare me. There you go. Done. Done. All right. So now you just let life take you to the next place. You know, I mean, you don't just shop at Walmart. You also shop someplace else. You have a car. You have a grocery store. You have clothing you buy. You have insurance that you buy. You have real estate that you buy. In other words, any adult in this country has five or six or seven different industries that they interact with on a regular basis. Totally. I guess I'm just, uh, I guess it's a little frustrating for people who are learning like me to constantly be studying industries that when, when you get to the point where you do feel like you understand them and you kind of have like a dog in the hunt. Is that right? Do dogs mm -hmm. go? Yeah, yeah, dogs in the hunt. Dog, Good. dog in the hunt. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're like ready to go and you can't do anything because the price isn't there. It's right. frustrating. But consider how much you've learned and how much you've progressed to know that. Isn't that much, much better <laughs> than to just be completely ignorant about how your money's being invested. Because knowing that, you would also know that if you put your money in, an, in a mutual fund or an index, you might be putting your money in at the top of a market. It's a little bit like asking, is it better to get an A in a regular English class in high school? Or is it better to get like a B in AP English? And the answer is not, it's better to get an A in AP English. It is not like and that. And so it is. it feels a little bit like that because it's I think not. that I would prefer to become an expert on whatever industry is heading down. Like that seems like a better use of my time. Am I wrong on this? I mean, oil I think is too hard for me, but maybe instead of looking at 
I mean, this is where the crystal ball comes in. This is the hard part, right? But like, maybe instead of looking at Walmart next, I should be looking at Target. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I do know what you mean. How, and, and what you're saying I have is not options, crazy. and how can I direct my decision making within those options, knowing that oil is not one of them? Okay, look, I, I'm I'm going to modify our our training a little bit here, and, and as a result of what you're saying, because what you're saying is true. It's very frustrating to just sort of arbitrarily, not arbitrarily. Yes, I think that's the right word, though. It feels arbitrary. Yeah, you're picking, like, you know, this industry. Stuff I'm interested in. Right. There's a bunch of public companies. I'm just literally just going to pick one because I have no direction. And and in fact, in our in our training course where we where we spend three days with people. Um, you'll recall that what we do is we put you on the stocks that gurus are already buying to help you avoid that problem. In other words, we want to integrate <clears throat> not only something that you think is in your canyon initially, because we do the three circles exercise in class and we have people get a list of stocks that are actually things that they're passionate about or they're spending money in or whatever. Those are companies that they already have some good feeling for. <clears throat> and then we overlay that list with a list of hundreds and hundreds of stocks that gurus are buying that I respect. Okay, I have two questions. One then, is, can you give a short summary of the workshop that you're talking about? And secondly, what's a guru? Okay, okay, fair enough. So let's start with the second one first. A guru is someone that I respect as an investor who invests more or less rule one style investing right? They're, they're definitely going to be a value investor of some sort. Um, they're going to be a Warren Buffett type investor. And there's a list of these people that we've created over time. And, and we use that list in our, in our class. So we call those Somebody gurus. That they're like a hedge fund manager or fund manager of some type. Right. So that you can see what they're trading publicly. We can see what they're trading publicly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So that's what a guru is. It's carefully selected out of eight or 10,000 managers of money around the world, we have a few dozen that we believe we can have some confidence in their decisions. Okay. So that's, that's a key that's part. That's just used as like a pointer. You don't copy them. Right. I hope. We don't. It, what it does is it gives us another screen. It gives us a screen for these guys uh, to help us narrow down the number of stocks that we're going to look at. And what we do in our in our training class, our three day class, and which by the way, you guys are all invited to or listening to this podcast, just go to where are they going to to figure this out? Investedpodcast.com, obviously. Okay, yeah, investedpodcast.com. And click the button about the workshop and we'll get you a scholarship to a workshop that we've sold all over the world for uh, four thousand bucks for the three days, and we'll get you there for free. And we're doing it more and more for free all the time. And more and more podcast people are coming all the time. And you can look at people's experiences with this thing. We don't sell anything there at all, ever. It's against our rules. It's against our own sort of moral code that we trick you into a sales process. There is no sales process. Danielle, you've been there. There is no sales process. Thank you very much. Um, and we do that very intentionally because we want you to know that you can learn this stuff and we want to teach it to you. So we're going to get you out the door after three days really understanding how to invest. And we are um, going to do that in a very structured way that's very hands-on. We actually have 30 or more 
volunteer coaches that come in from around the country once a month here to Atlanta and help me teach this class. They, we break the class up into small groups. We have about 250 people in the class and, um, and 30 coaches. So your coach to student ratio is really good. And you're going to have lots of hands-on opportunity to work your way through this. About 60 or 70% of the people who come to this class have never invested their own money in their lives. They're struggling with, with just even the terminology. They're very much in Danielle's camp here. And there are probably 20 to 30% of the people who have experience investing. And a small number of the people are actually investment managers and professionals. So we gear this forget class. Those. Yeah, forget those guys. We gear the class to, to the beginner investors. Um, but we put you into uh, the pool and have you swimming on your own very, very rapidly. Um, so anyway, you so guys are invited. The idea is you kind of put three people through a process where they look at what they're spending money on in their real lives yep. and what they're interested in yep. and what they know about. Yep. And then seeing if that overlaps with anything that these guru investors are buying. Yep. And we see that overlap. That's kind of how you like point in a certain direction. Exactly. And then that gives you a relatively narrow list of companies to begin to do the research on, which we call the four M's. Do I understand this business? That's the meaning. Do I do I have an intrinsic characteristic in this business? That's the moat. Do I have a decent management team based on the numbers the business is producing? And finally, what's this worth as a business and can I buy it on sale? You're you will learn those things and and be before you even get to class we get you set up with a bunch of pre workshop uh, learning and then um, you will have by the middle of the second day you're going to be extraordinarily surprised at how well you can do the research and find companies using that that structure. Well, I'm still stuck on the canyon thing. So okay, this makes more sense to me. Like I do think that there should be some way to direct your choices. And that's a way. That's a way. Um, well, I think you're making you're making the argument that a better way would be to find stuff that is per, that is potentially already on sale and then learn that. No, thing. I'm not trying to make that argument because I think that actually scares me because the whole point of what we've been talking about is that you start out where you're comfortable. Yeah. And and the reason that you do that is that it gives you, first of all, kind of a leg up. And secondly, it lets you it lets you start where you are. You know, you're not trying to like for me, like learning the oil industry is uh, I'm sure I could do it. I'm not really worried that I'm like not capable of it, but it would take a lot of work and a lot of time for me to really get to the point where I feel like, OK, I have a really strong sense of what's happening here. And who's How much? How much work? And especially what the international dynamics are. About. All right, tell me how much work and how much time do you think? Just give me a guess. How long do you think it would take you? Like in hours? Yeah. Um, I think it would take like several months of full-time work. So okay, several months of full-time work. Let's say I work 50 hours a week, Okay. 200 hours a month. Let's say I put in... 600 to 800 hours. 600 to 800 hours to really be competent at the oil industry. That's my guess. Okay. Yes. Okay. My guess was a little lower than that. 
in rule one. Why does that I, not I, surprise me <laughs> since you were asking me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you just made me depressed right there. I think, oh right? my God, that's a lot. But the thing is, I mean, that you're probably picking the most difficult industry you could possibly choose. I mean, talk about any industry that has so much regulation, so much international dynamics, so much dependence on what war is happening and what dictator is covering what country and what the U.S. policy is and what OPEC is doing. Like, I mean, there's just so many factors to that industry that are, um, I mean, I would say not being an expert on it, unpredictable. So I got, I got to the point where I read enough articles where I was like, whoa, this, this S is cray. That's, that was my impression. So let's let's say that you you have this concern that it's going to just take this huge amount of time. What if there were just a few small things that about the oil industry that you really had to know? That'd make it a lot easier. All right, that's. In other words, all of this, like like if you were to go to NYU and take a course from um, from an expert on valuation. You would find a similar kind of a problem that the that the number of things you'd have to know to properly value a business are just like so many things. You could get a PhD in valuing the business, you know. But what if it turned out that while that's true, if you were to value every business or every aspect of every business, when it came down to the companies that we need to invest in, it turns out there's only about eight or ten things you really have to know. I think that that, forgive me, is a naive point of view. Okay. I think that it depends on what industry you're talking about. If you're talking about the retail industry, yeah, I, I can I can buy that there's eight or ten things. It's easy enough to understand. The regulation is there, but it's nothing crazy. I can get that industry. I can understand the car industry. I can understand the grocery industry. Okay, well, but what, what if it came down to just understanding that in a commodity industry, the low-cost producer wins? No matter what the regulation is, no matter what is going on out there, in a commodity industry, what you have to know is that the low-cost producer wins. Totally. That's it. Number now one. the question is... How do you get to be the low-cost producer? Okay, the number That's two. That's where the rubber meets the road. The number two thing you need to know about the oil industry is that debt kills. Number one, low-cost producer. Number two, low debt. Okay? Then you get into a little more esoteric stuff when it comes to, you know, which company to pick. Number three is ultimately, if you're buying an oil company the value of the business has to be connected to either the oil that it already has in the ground that it owns or its ability to find oil, its, its ability to explore and find it. So if we just said, oh, well, what we're really interested in right now is really just who's got the most oil in the ground for dollars of, of cost to buy the business, that might be a third relatively simple thing to look at. Some of these companies have a lot of oil in the ground. Some of them don't. It, it matters. The interplay between those three things matters. As in, let's say you have the most oil in the ground, but there's no way you can be the low-cost producer because of regulations pushing, pushing your price up. And that happens in the oil industry, uh, from my understanding. Well, 
Okay, we're gonna we're we're basically gonna come back to one main point here that I want you to understand is that that business is not that complicated. That you can tie yourself in knots with all of the esoteric details uh, about things, but if you come down to just the basics about the industry, mostly it's not that complicated. Okay, and I can accept that. I do, and maybe it's a sense of like. When you, when you know nothing, you feel like there's so much stuff that you don't know. Um, whereas when you know a bit more about it, and I actually don't know if you know anything about the oil industry, but you seem to know three things about it, so you know more than me. And so maybe you have a better sense than I do of like what there is to know. And then let me, let me add this one thing, is that the, the thing that gets me uh, interested in an industry is often what you were just uh, pointing out you know, 10 minutes ago, which is that somebody really big time is buying into that industry. So right now, for example, Warren Buffett is buying into the oil and gas industry in a very specific niche, which is sort of the middle, like oil and gas has sort of three major components to it. Um, and they, they liken it to the flow of oil downstream. So you got the upstream companies which explore for it. Then you've got your midstream companies that refine it and move it around. Um, and then you've got your downstream companies that sell it to the public. And Buffett is buying a company right now that's in the midstream area of this with, with some downstream, but mainly focused on the midstream, taking oil and turning it into something else and then moving that out to the retail part. Now, um, by right now... I don't even know what time period you're talking about exactly. So like, let's say everybody should go check this out on their own. In the last 90 the days. Set. Yeah. Well, of course, you could listen to this anytime. I mean, we don't know what he could be doing, you know. Right, right, right. Um, so check it out on your own. This is not advice at all. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to name the company because I don't want you all running out there to buy it, and, you know, without doing your homework. So at least do enough homework to go figure out which one it is. You can do that. Well, right? he may have blown up the deal by now. Who knows? Yeah, he might have sold it by now. If this is four years later from right now, when you're listening to this, so it's all possible. But the main thing is that I, I, what I want to point out is that I get interested in that industry, in that niche in that industry, because I see that one of the greatest investors in the world has this as his number five largest position, like, and, and which is very significant for him. It's not a, it's not a minor deal. He's really buying in seriously. So now I think, okay, well, I need to learn about that industry. And I start reading. In my experience, it's not anywhere like, you know, whatever number of hours you were talking about there. It was, you know, I'm talking about that you start into something and you try to basically get rid of it. It's just say like, okay, this is not something I can understand, so I'm going to move on. That might take 10 minutes. Maybe it takes two hours. You know why? You know why it takes you 10 minutes? It's because you've done this a bunch of times. Well, of course, the more you do it, the faster you can do it. Of course, yeah. that's true. But and you know I, why you can look at that company and go, oh, I'd like to understand it. And then you go and understand it. It's because you've done it a bunch of times. Right. Fair enough. So let's let's just stipulate here that you're going to come down the mountain faster on your snowboard after you've done it for a year than you're going to do on day one. Yeah, so start out on the bunny hill. So you can't say 
it takes me 45 minutes to get down a 200-yard bunny hill and extrapolate that into how long it's going to take you to come down the whole mountain two years from now. Because they're oh, totally. totally unrelated. Fair point. Fair point. I was kind of talking about forever. You're right. I was talking about forever. Yeah. I will give you that maybe in two years I can do a faster job than a four-month <laughs> foray into the oil industry. Well, I think we've got to stop. I hope. And, and move on to a, a, a more subject on point, which is, although this is pretty critical stuff, I, I think it's important that we continue to provide real hard information for people to continue their investing skills. So we're going to do the next podcast for sure, starting right off the bat on dividends. So we understand the structure of dividends, the taxation of dividends, why you like them, why they're a bad idea sometimes. All of those things is what we're going to talk about next time, okay? And once we've done that, we're going to wrap up valuation. Okay, then we're going to wrap up valuation, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) All right, until then, time to go play. Bye, everybody. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.